Hello and welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. I'm Howard Kaplan. This On Air podcast features attorneys from Myrick O'Connell, a full-service law firm with offices in Worcester, Westboro, and Boston. Our topic today is Divorce for Beginners. Our guest is Fern Frolin, a member of the firm's family law group. She focuses her practice on complex matrimonial law matters, including divorce, custody, child support, modification, asset division, business valuation, and grandparent visitation cases. She's also frequently appointed a special master, is an American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers trained arbitrator and family law mediator, and a court trained conciliator. Fern, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start off this way. What makes a divorce no fault? Well, until the 1970s, if one or both parties wanted to end their marriage, wanted to get a divorce, One of them had to tell the court under oath that there were grounds for the divorce. Grounds could be something like adultery or chronic alcoholism, non-support, desertion, cruel and abusive behavior, pretty bad behavior. And in the 1970s, beginning on the West Coast and then spreading across the country, courts and legislatures decided that Most people who got divorced were really getting divorced because they were no longer happily married and that it wasn't really anyone's fault and there ought to be an option for those people to come to court and undo their marriage without basically fabricating some kind of story and doing it under oath. So they invented no-fault divorce, which means in simple terms there's an irreconcilable difference and one party, sometimes it's both, but it can be just one, just doesn't want to be married to the other one anymore without saying that it's someone's fault. Are there states that require grounds for divorce still? There are circumstances that require grounds for divorce still. So, for example, um, in New York, until very recently, last couple of years, Um, You could get a divorce without grounds, but you had to do it only by agreement. So one person wasn't enough. Both people had to agree that the marriage was over. Hmm. And you had to have a divorce agreement that you lived under for a full year before you could then come to, so you're apart, you're living under an agreement, before you could then come to the court and say, grant a no-fault divorce. And different states have, have different different rules. Um, 50 states, there are probably 50 different rules on to what extent it's easier or harder to get a no-fault divorce. Also, in some states, there are certain um, things that you give up if you do a no-fault divorce, certain rights, and certain people are not eligible for, for no-fault divorce. But the by far, the majority of states make it very easy to undo the marriage. Is there an advantage to a divorce on grounds? In many, many states there is. In many states, if you could prove adultery, you can, uh, against a spouse who would otherwise want spousal support or alimony, you can invoke a statute that says, aha, you're an adulterer or an an adulteress, and you're not entitled to alimony. So in those states, there is definitely an advantage. In Massachusetts, where I mainly practice, and in about two-thirds of the states overall, there is no advantage. It's just, for some people, satisfying to say, this is it's not my fault, it's yours. This is why the marriage is over. 
in most states, it doesn't, it won't make any difference at all. You mentioned earlier that there are some circumstances that in some states will prohibit you from getting a no-fault divorce. Just out of curiosity, what might those be? Well, there are things like if one person is heavily contesting the divorce and there are young children and if you don't come forward with grounds for your divorce, it might impact your access to the children, for uh, example. Right. There, there are few and far between reasons for people to, to get a divorce with grounds in most states. Sure, sure. So, Fern, can you explain the divorce process in Massachusetts? Sure. Either there are two sides of the statute. There's what we call a 1A side and a 1B side. It, it could be any numbers. That just happens to be the way the statute is written. And ultimately, in order to get your divorce, certain things have to be decided. You have to, someone has to decide how the property that the couple owns, both separately and, and jointly, gets divided, who's going to take ownership of what, um, how is the care and custody and access to children and rights of parents to make decisions for children going to be decided, who's going to have what parenting time, how are both spouses going to support themselves, and in some states even who's going to pay for the health insurance. Um, in order to resolve all those things on the 1A side, the couple somehow or another has to decide it permanently, write it down, sign and notarize their agreement of how it's going to happen, and then say our marriage can't be fixed because that's the basis of no-fault divorce. It's not just that I don't want to be married today. It's that I don't want to be married and it's not reparable. And take it to the court and say approve our agreement say that our agreement is fair and reasonable and grant us a divorce. The other side of the statute, the 1B side, is someone files a complaint for divorce, has it served, it's just like any other lawsuit, and it still can get settled along the way, and it usually does get settled along the way, but sometimes it doesn't, and now you have a court involved in helping you to resolve all the things that need to be resolved in order to get the divorce. So I'm sure, Fern, that there are so many details to this. What things have to be decided to complete the divorce? One thing you have to decide is division of property. You have to decide in our state, the property of the parties is divided equitably. So that's not necessarily equally 50-50 exactly, but something that's fair and that someone thinks is fair. It can be what the parties think is fair. It could be what a court thinks it's fair. If the parties think it's fair and the parties are competent to make that decision, usually the court won't second guess it. Um, and that can be things like you know, who's going to take title to the residence that the parties lived in? Who's going to get grandmother's silver? Who's going, how are we going to divide our pensions? So we call that property division. And many people start with property division because that tells you what the financial circumstances is going to be going forward. Once you know the financial circumstances, the next thing you have to decide is support with the assets that I'm taking out of my marriage. Uh, how Am I going to support myself? Is it going to be enough? Am I going to be able to live the marital lifestyle? The goal in our commonwealth, but not throughout the country necessarily, is for the parties to live 
as close to the marital standard of living as possible post-divorce. So support is meant to adjust for that if one person has much more resources than the other. That, that's what we call spousal support, sometimes called alimony. Sure. It's not true in every state. In some states, um, support is limited to the amount necessary to maintain an out-of-poverty lifestyle. So um, it, it varies from state to state how support is decided. For many people, what has to be decided, certainly if you have children, is care and custody and access to children. And that's divided into two segments. Legal decision-making, important decisions, how religious upbringing, things like that. We call that legal custody in most jurisdictions. In some jurisdictions, they call it parental rights, the right to make decisions where your child will go to school things like that. The next thing that has to be decided is how are the children going to transfer from house to house and on what schedule. In our commonwealth, we call that a parenting plan. In some states, they still call it child custody. Child custody is kind of an old-fashioned word. Um, We think that fit parents always have custody of their children and the child is in the custody of whichever parent it happens to be living with. In addition, you have to have support for children. How are your children going to, who's going to pay the medical insurance and the housing costs and the transportation costs and the food on the table and the clothing and the camp? And in some states, child support is limited to necessities, and in other states, it's driven by standard of living. I think that covers it. Life insurance, health insurance, things like that are some details that also get added in. But those are driven by the first decisions. And, for example, if there's a child support order and the person paying the child support were to pass away, how would the child then be supported? The parties might very well decide or the court might require that there be life insurance to guard against that. All those details have to get decided without regard to whose fault it was. So given all this, how long, and I'm sure you get this question constantly, does a divorce take from beginning to end? Well, it depends how motivated the parties are. Two people who want to have it over with and are in agreement can get it done in, I would say, eight to ten weeks, but not during covid Um, (laughs) our courts are closed right now but normally I say you could do it in 8 to 10 weeks and you could um, reach your agreement by yourselves or with the help of a neutral person there's lots of of different ways to get to that agreement for all the details that we talked about Um, and in many cases it takes a year and a half I would say a year and a half is not out of the range and every now and then you find some unmotivated people who've already separated without getting legally divorced and spend years and years and years either fighting over it or in many cases ignoring it. And then five, six, seven years later, it's not too late. They come forward and say, you know, we, we're going to sign an agreement and have our legal marriage ended because marriage marriage is a legal status and it matters whether you're legally married or not for for lots of reasons. Does a divorcing couple necessarily need lawyers? We recommend lawyers for almost all couples, but not necessarily one lawyer for each. 
a lawyer cannot legally, ethically represent both parties. The parties have an adverse interest, and one lawyer can't do that in our commonwealth. In many, many states, one lawyer can. Um, in our commonwealth, divorce, even an amicable one, is considered a adversary process, and a lawyer can't represent both or even advise both. However, a mediator can. And in that case, you might have a lawyer who's serving as a neutral person who's helping you reach your decisions and even writing up the agreement in some circumstances. And people who have uncomplicated lives together can very easily do that with their one neutral mediator. Most mediators would still say, have a lawyer look at the agreement. Make sure someone who's on your side tells you if the deal that you've struck is fair and what you're giving up, what another deal might look like if you didn't sign this one. Um, So we advise people to have lawyers, but lots of people get divorced without them. One thing that you mentioned I picked up on that honestly shocked me was that in some states, both parties can be represented by the same lawyer. I did not know that. (laughs) Yep. I know. It, it, is, it is surprising, and it's true in some foreign countries, too. I occasionally get a request from a foreign country to manage a divorce here for two people. It'll be a parent in a foreign country who, who says, you know, my daughter and her husband are getting divorced. They don't have anything. Can you represent them? And it's a simple answer. We say, no, I can't represent both of them, but I can represent neither of them and simply mediate their divorce. And then in that case, I would recommend that they have separate lawyers look at at the ultimate document, give them the advice that we just talked about. Um, But lots of people don't. Lots and lots of people just say, um, and I think foolishly, but um, just say that's it's good enough. The divorce process in most cases requires people to go to court and stand in front of a judge and tell the judge that they understand the agreement that they've made and that they told the truth on their financial disclosure. You have to file financial disclosure to get a divorce so that the court knows that it's fair and reasonable because how would a judge know um, unless you said under oath, this is what I have, whether the ultimate division of what you have is is fair to both parties. Lots of people go to, to court without a lawyer standing next to them. Our topic on on air with Myra O'Connell today is divorce for beginners. The topic kind of says it all. Our guest has been family law attorney Fern Froland from the firm of Myra O'Connell. You can learn how Fern and her colleagues at Myra O'Connell can assist you with your business and personal legal needs by visiting myraoconnell.com. I'm Howard Kaplan on behalf of Myra O'Connell and attorney Fern Froland. Thanks for joining us. Take care and stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myra O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. 